This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. The head of NATO says Ukraine can expect more deliveries of heavy weapons from Western countries soon. In comments to German media, Jens Stoltenberg says the war with Russia is in a decisive phase and it's important to provide Ukraine with the weapons it needs to win. The comments come as officials in the eastern Ukrainian city of Dnipro warn there might be no more survivors found after a Russian missile strike on a high-rise apartment building killed at least 30 people. Global Affairs editor John Lyons is in the capital, Kyiv. John, over the past year, Western nations have been gradually expanding the range of weapons being provided to Ukraine. What are some of the latest pledges? Well, Kim, over the weekend, the United Kingdom has pledged 14 of its main battle tanks, the Challenger 2, to try to boost sort of the Ukrainians' war effort. One of the things being here, though, that really strikes you is how asymmetrical this war is, that it's a very defensive war. Russia is able to fire whatever missiles it wants at and into the Ukrainians. But of course, because of the NATO restrictions, Ukraine cannot return fire, even to the source, even if they can see a major missile being prepared and loaded in Belarus or Russia or the Caspian Sea. Unlike most wars where one side would then hit a preemptive hit on a on a rocket about to be launched or a missile, the Ukrainians can't do that. It's like they have one hand tied behind their back. John, is that British offer a significant escalation of the type of weaponry that the West is providing? Yes, it is an escalation. I think it's an acknowledgement that at the moment there's a, a stalemate. The Ukrainians are sort of fighting and making some progress, but essentially it's now sort of become bogged down in almost a quagmire, which could go on for years. Uh, it's a stalemate, essentially. So I think what the British are doing, and other countries will probably follow, is trying to give Ukraine uh, more of the really heavy weaponry, such as the tanks, that they think could push things towards a victory for Ukraine. And on the Russian side, how is Moscow escalating its attacks on Ukraine at the moment? Well, the weekend um, in Kyiv, where I was on Saturday, we suddenly heard a series of explosions that weren't too far away, quite intimidating sounding. There were several targets around Kyiv hit, um, but the worst, of course, was Dnipro, which really uh, took the worst of the battering. But most, many towns around Ukraine were hit over the weekend. Now, one of those attacks was uh, on a building in Dnipro. It was a high-rise apartment. What caused caused so much damage there and and what does that mean for the course that this war may take? Well, the apartment building that was hit was hit by a KH-22 missile, um, which is a huge, powerful and very nasty missile. It's a cruise missile with a warhead of 950 kilograms. Um, It was designed in the Soviet era to essentially attack ships, um, and yet this was sent into an apartment building. Um, this has generally a variation. It's not a, an accurate weapon. It's often within two kilometres of its target. So to fire that into a residential area or near a residential area surely would fit the definition 
of a war crime. And I think what really concerns people here where I am in Kyiv now is that if Vladimir Putin was prepared to do this on the weekend into an apartment building, that he may start to use more of these incredibly powerful uh, and incredibly uh, damaging weapons. Global Affairs Editor John Lyons in Kyiv. Nepal is observing a day of mourning for victims of the country's worst air disaster in three decades. Local officials say at least 68 people were killed. There was an Australian on board as well. As the plane tried to land in a tourist town that's a gateway to a popular Himalayan hiking trail. Alexandra Humphreys reports. There were 72 people on board the Yeti Airlines flight. It had left the capital Kathmandu for the short journey to Pakara, Nepal's second largest city. After making contact with the airport, it crashed. One witness reported seeing the aircraft spinning violently in the air after it began its descent. We heard a loud noise like thunder and rushed to our terrace to see what had happened. We saw a lot of smoke and realised it was an airline crash and we ran to the site. I stayed back from the debris, but my friend went down the small hill to look for survivors and took out at least 35 bodies. Another witness reported hearing cries from the fiery wreck. Plume of smoke billowed upwards. Onlookers crowded around as rescue workers combed through debris scattered from the edge of a cliff and down into the gorge below. The search for the missing is resuming this morning. Bodies were taken to local hospitals. Distraught relatives gathered at Kathmandu Airport. They were met there by Nepal's Prime Minister Pushpa Kamal Dahal. The incident was tragic. The full force of the Nepali army and police has been deployed for the rescue. Neil Hansford is the chairman of airline consultancy company Strategic Aviation Solutions. He's told RN Breakfast the aircraft had previously been used by Indian and Thai airlines. You know, it's about 15 years old, the right aircraft to do the job. But there is one concerning thing, that the airport was only opened in recent times, built and financed by the Chinese government. Nepali authorities say the flight included five Indians, four Russians and one Irish, two South Korean, one Australian, one French and one Argentine national. Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade is urgently seeking information. Mr Hansford says Nepal's topography is to blame for its deadly crash record and he wouldn't be confident flying there. It's got eight of the tallest mountains in the world. So, you know, and starting in the Himalayas, so, and you've got deep gorges, poor country, uh, rough terrain, um, changeable weather conditions at short notice, but probably a very basic level of um, training and compliance. Nepal's Civil Aviation Authority said it wasn't immediately clear what caused the crash. The type of aircraft, an ATR-72, has been involved in several deadly crashes since it was introduced in the 1980s. A panel has been set up to investigate. Alexandra Humphreys. Australian charities are struggling to keep up with increasing requests for help as people grapple with cost of living pressures. Groups like the Salvation Army and Food Bank are urging the government to lift the job seeker rate to help those in extreme hardship. And there's also a push for tax reform to try to encourage businesses to donate more. Political reporter Stephanie Boris explains. 
For decades, people in need of help have turned to the Salvation Army. We are seeing a considerable increase in demand, especially in our emergency relief spaces. Jennifer Cucaldi is the General Manager of Policy and Advocacy and has never witnessed one reason being so prevalent in why people seek support. Over a third of everyone who comes to us for emergency relief is identifying the rising cost of living as the reason. It is stark and it's quite pervasive. New figures from the Salvation Army show cost of living pressures are hitting the hardest in the Northern Territory, followed by Western Australia and then Victoria. Rising costs are also making it tricky for charities to provide substantial relief. So if we are handing out a $50 voucher, for example, that's simply not going to have as much of an impact now as it had 12 months ago. Brianna Casey is the CEO of Food Bank. We have seen an extraordinary increase in demand for food relief in the last 12 months. And this is coming off what we thought was going to be record highs throughout the pandemic. She says one way to help those in extreme hardship is to significantly boost the job seeker rate. People on the lowest levels of income need a realistic increase. About 70% of people supported by the Salvation Army are on government payments. Jennifer Cocaldi says changing the rate is essential. It makes a lot more economics sense to pay for it now and lift people out of poverty. The government will take advice from the Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee, which will make recommendations on welfare benefits in the lead up to the budget. While charities wait, they're putting forward other proposals to try and boost donations. Food Bank wants tax relief offered to farmers as well as food and grocery stores if they donate produce, as Brianna Casey explains. When they have a product that doesn't make it to market, the tax system right now treats it exactly the same way for donating as it would for dumping. Why aren't we incentivising and making it more appealing to donate product to vulnerable people rather than to dump it? It's already happening in the United States, Canada and France. Under the proposal, businesses would get either a refundable tax offset or a non-refundable tax credit if they donate food. We know in other countries across the globe where they use a tax incentive to be able to to encourage people to donate rather than dump food, it makes a significant change in behaviour. A feasibility study commissioned by Food Bank estimates the incentive would provide an extra 100 million meals a year. Stephanie Boris reporting. Experts predict China's huge COVID surge will worsen as millions resume travelling between cities and rural areas to celebrate the Lunar New Year holiday this coming weekend. China's government says about 60,000 people have died in hospital with COVID in the six weeks since it eased restrictions. So what does it mean for Australia and the rest of the world? Annie Guest has been taking a look. Facing scepticism for reporting just 37 COVID deaths since early December, China has recalibrated that to about 60,000. But Monash University's Head of Epidemiological Modelling, James Trower, says the new official figure only includes hospital deaths. I think there's a lot of elderly and vulnerable people who would be dying without getting hospital care in China, and the hospitals are very stressed, we believe. I mean... There are stories of hospitals being very much overwhelmed and people being turned away from hospitals. So the true number of deaths in the community is likely to be considerably higher. And with China now permitting citizens to travel freely for the first Lunar New Year holiday in two years, Associate Professor Trower, who's also a respiratory specialist, predicts COVID will continue to spread. 
the fact that we've got so much travel within China means that even more of the population have the potential to be exposed within this first very major wave. Officials in Taiwan and South Korea are reporting at least 20% of passengers on flights from China have COVID. So increased cases are expected in various countries. I don't think it's a reason to panic. The variant that's circulating in China is a variant that's been present in many other parts of the world for some time. By having additional cases arrive from China, it it's likely that there will be some people infected who might not have otherwise been infected and it is reasonable for vulnerable people to avoid those very high-risk people in, in, the, in the immediate period after they've arrived. Professor Mike Toole from the Burnett Institute also expects China's big COVID wave will cause an increase in cases, including in Australia. That's correct. If they um, have the same variants that we already have, um, you know, they will infect other people, but it probably proportionally won't be a, a major um, impact on the numbers. He believes the greatest risk is posed by the possibility of the virus mutating as it spreads through China and a new, more dangerous variant emerging. He supports pre-departure COVID tests for travellers from China, but worries Australia's other COVID precautions are inadequate. We really have no more precautions in Australia. Now, we don't have to stay home if we test positive. We don't even have to test. All we really have is vaccines and our booster rate remains pretty low. Professor Mike Toole from the Burnett Institute ending that report from Annie Guest. It's shaping up to be a difficult week for US President Joe Biden after the discovery over the weekend of more classified documents in his Delaware home. Democrats are keen to stress that the Biden document scandal is very different to that involving former President Donald Trump, but the admissions that he too held on to classified materials are at the very least extremely embarrassing. The President's woes come just as he's expected to announce a decision on whether he'll run for re-election next year. North America correspondent Barbara Miller compiled this report. Mr President, the choir's going to warm it up for you. The reception at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, for the president could not have been warmer. That's how we Baptists do. Joe Biden was introduced by Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock to deliver the Sunday sermon at Martin Luther King's Church ahead of a national annual holiday to honour the slain civil rights leader. Joe Biden. And there is certainly no mention of the deepening document scandal. I've spoken before parliaments, kings, queens, leaders of the world. I've been doing this for a long time, but this is intimidating following. But it's the talk of the town in Washington. All the more so after the White House announced over the weekend that five more pages of documents with classified markings were found at his Delaware home. That's in addition to the documents found in his garage and those found in November at a think tank office he'd previously used in Washington. The hypocrisy here is great. Republican James Comer, chair of the House Oversight Committee, spoke to CNN's State of the Union program. We're very concerned about a lack of transparency. We're 
We're very concerned, as I've said many times, about a two-tier system of justice in America. The Kentucky congressman has written to the White House chief of staff asking for more information on the searches of the Biden home and office, including visitor logs. And hopefully we'll get some answers very soon. The Republicans were less keen to probe the circumstances surrounding the classified documents found in a raid of former President Donald Trump's Florida residence, leaving them in turn open to accusations of hypocrisy. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin. It was a very rapid clip at which we learned about it compared to the Trump case. The government investigators had to go to court in order to get a subpoena to go to Mar-a-Lago to get dozens of boxes of classified material and government documents. The president and former president now find themselves subject to probes by special counsel over their handling of classified documents. It's an extraordinary situation which complicates considerations of whether Donald Trump should be prosecuted and is terrible timing for the current president, who'd announced that around about now he'd be declaring whether or not he's running for a second term. On his social media platform, Donald Trump mused that Biden's classified document scandal was growing worse by the hour, a statement it's hard to argue with. This is Barbara Miller in Washington reporting for AM. Around the world, tourism is recovering after a couple of tough years thanks to the COVID pandemic. Even in remote Antarctica, more than 100,000 visitors are expected this summer. But as Nick Grimm reports, that's revived worries about the impact on the continent's pristine environment. Lately, the office view hasn't been too bad for University of Tasmania academic Dr Hannah Nielsen. At the moment, if I look out the window... I'm seeing some glacier fronts, some quite tall mountains and the odd humpback whale swimming past. So I'm speaking to you today from the Antarctic Peninsula. From her vantage point on board the Antarctic tourism ship, the MS Fritjof Nansen, the senior lecturer in Antarctic law governance has been able to witness up close the sights and sounds usually reserved for paying guests and travel vloggers like these. One thing about travelling in Antarctica is that you have to be flexible. The conditions here are dynamic, they're always changing. We've made a spontaneous landing on this rock. Landing is happening! But what interests Hannah Nilsson and her colleagues is how tourist experiences like that can help protect the pristine environment from being loved to death. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very fine dance. So any travel, any tourism travel is not without impacts. So the questions that we want to ask are how could we be finding ways to have some positive impact from these activities that are already happening. And that's not discounting some of those uh, negative impacts that can happen from that activity, Um, but trying to find ways to have positives come through uh, as well. And the need to protect the frozen continent has never been more urgent, despite a massive reduction in the number of people visiting over the last few years, thanks to the pandemic. In the 2020-2021 visitor season, just 15 tourists went to Antarctica, down from 74,000 the previous year. But this summer, a record 106,000 are expected to visit. Professor Elizabeth Lean is leading the University of Tasmania research project. You know, 100,000 is not a huge number 
of tourists by world standards. You know, so 20 million people go to Paris every year. But it is in the sense that they're visiting a fairly limited part of Antarctica, usually the Antarctic Peninsula, and a relatively limited number of sites. So there is this danger that as the numbers go up, it's going to become less and less of a remote, pristine place. Professor Elizabeth Lean from the University of Tasmania, ending that report from Nick Grimm. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.